It's Punk Rock Month on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. It's a re-release of the Explosion of Punk, originally released in October 2019. So kick back with some adult recreational substances and enjoy. Episode 28 of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, and this episode is all about the explosion of punk rock. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And I know that you are just brimming with energy about this episode, which is brought to you by our friends at Crooked Eye Brewery, right there in the heart of Happer on Pennsylvania. They've got the cure for what ails you since 2014. And I know they were very excited when I was there for Vinyl Night last week to hear about our explosion of punk rock episode. And I told them that they had to get in line behind you, my brother. It's going to be quite a fun conversation. Young, Loud, and Snotty is going to be a reoccurring theme for today's episode. It's imbalanced, crazy, nutso at times, surreal. Some of the things that happened as we were digging in were even crazier than what we had imagined. And the cool thing about this is you're going to get two viewpoints of the punk rock explosion. Mine as an impressionable young preteen, which is where I first got a hold of the punk rock music from babysitters and older brothers and sisters of my friends that I was growing up with. So you see it from there. And Ray's viewpoint, who as a few years older than me, was living it and seeing it from a rock and roll perspective. Witnessing at the very least and then participating in a lot of it. And you did a bunch of college radio that included a lot of punk rock because at that time, yes. college radio was one of the best places to hear in the United States punk rock, alternative rock, the post-punk the goth and all of that stuff that we're going to get into because they're all part of the uh, punk rock explosion. I think when I've looked into punk rock in different cities, that is a commonality of the early days, especially in the 70s, was the support widespread of college radio. And you saw it even like when I was at WTSR in Trenton, records would come in that were immediately considered because of what they were. And then people would play them or not play them. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of those albums, they would go six, seven songs deep on those college radio stations because they were all the fan base. Long. Yeah. And the fan base, I mean, the fan base was so, yeah. so loyal and they knew every word and every note to every single song of every album because that's how you listen to albums back then. Very different than the listening of music today. And it's what drew me. It's the music that I felt the most at that point in my life. And it's the music that really kind of helped shape and define who I am in a lot What's of ways. What's your jump on point because of how old you were and when you were born? What year did you really start jumping into punk rock music? I would say... 76, 77, oh, so 78. You were a young lad like I was 10, 11, 12. Yeah. And I was about 8, 10 years old when I first saw David Bowie, late night TV, played Space Oddity, and I was blown away, and my mm-hmm. parents were kind of sad. And then <laughs> I started hearing The Clash and the Sex Pistols, and we started reading about them and seeing them on news, and I was like, oh, these guys are pissing off the old people. Right. I need to check them out. Yeah. And, but little did you know, and little did I know, when around that same time when we were all uh, seeing a film of the Sex Pistols performing, hearing about the other bands that were on their way in behind that initial, part of that initial assault of the American sensibilities, I guess you'd say, in 1975-6, my view of it was, well, this is something pretty interesting going on right here, isn't it? And then you got to know a little bit more about the characters involved and that there, there were other bands out there. And that was when we started to put together, I think, in our heads, that the beginning of what was happening there in the mid-70s that became the explosion of punk that we're looking at today actually began with bands we already knew about, but we didn't get the connection because we didn't know at that time mm-hmm. that everyone who bought a Velvet Underground record did go out and 
start a fucking band. But they did, and this is part of what happened because of that. And wait till you hear Iggy Pop's take on that in the early days before he started the Stooges because he wasn't really... Well, let's talk about the I, Stooges I mean, because we, they, they're... they're I that's look where at this it, I thing. mean... This, you look at this thing here, and, 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 and what we've been making our yeah. notes, and you look at the Velvets, you mm-hmm. look at the Stooges, and you look at their predecessors in Detroit, the MC5, and they started in 1963, so they weren't labeled into something we called it proto-punk or yeah. people call it proto-punk yeah. when we did Garage episode rock, six proto-punk if you like this episode go check out episode number six on uh, imbalancehistory.com so the sounds were already out yeah. there and, and i gotta go back to what my friend shiva galko told us at the end of her comments after she heard episode six remember that when it came to punk rock america shot first there's no doubt with the mc5s with velvets yeah with the stooges and then well, the scene in new york starting in like 71 with the new york dolls who oh, were absolutely who were I, I think the dolls were unique in as much as they were an explosion point for both punk rock because of the way they sounded and also glam rock for some of their stage antics and the way they dressed and looked. iggy pop wore dresses just like david bowie he didn't give a rat's ass he no, wore whatever he, he wanted, right. and he freaked people out and yes, this was before he got signed and, and before he started the cutting yep, and all that stuff that freaked people out even more you know you mentioned all these early bands on the west coast looking in the roots of the la punk scene a lot of those guys both the women and the men go back to the right. mothers of invention and the right. doors as the early and jim morrison being as punk rock as he was because he totally said to the rules fuck you he was the first musician to ever tell the crowd fuck you you suck and flip them off and whip his dick out and like flop it <laughs> at him like, he did that before anybody okay. else did and that's what Iggy was like, holy shit, this guy did that. Well, listen, we were talking about this while we were prepping for this episode, right? And you were telling me that there were a lot of punk rockers who said that Jim Morrison was uh, nothing. He was yeah. a average bad poet. bad poet and a hack and, and all this other stuff. Now, where were those clowns from? Some of them were from Cleveland. Oh, so they had a different perspective. Like, I think Wayne Kramer was one of the craziest motherfuckers on the planet, without a doubt, and yeah, still no might doubt. be. Like, yeah. I mean, well, if we really, down, at some bud. point, we're doing an episode on that because yeah. of his time in prison and the but insanity that they did. But we're talking about MC5. People from the Midwest, maybe in Cleveland, yeah. maybe th- feel that way. And people in other parts of the country might feel that way that are punks. But you told me that in the same day, you told me that you found the other side of the coin when it came to the L.A. punks led by... Exine Cervanka, John Doe, Keith Morris, and some of those guys the from X Black guys. Flag. The X guys and Black guys Flag were some of the early punks. You're talking about the West Coast guys. Yep. Those two acts particularly epitomize punk in L.A. Different sound, same yep. ideas. Yep. And uh, we, when you look at Black Flag later uh, from hardcore. their earliest day, they are one of the foundations of what became American hardcore music. Henry's role in that, which we could get off on a whole thing about oh, Black absolutely. Flag and Henry Rollins and Beyond. On. I, yeah. The story about traveling with Henry two weeks after 9-11 alone is worth the time we'll take for it. But you got these guys out there, and they say Morrison was cool. I don't know. You're right. He took an attitude that was kind of punk rock because he was sleeping in the soul kitchen because yeah. he got too high. And he had money. It wasn't like he needed to. Well, in the beginning, he needed to, I guess. His dad, the military, the conservative military man, hated everything Classic he was reaction, doing. The totally. And totally a classic reaction to being a hardcore constricted military dude so that's why they dug him and that's kind of the roots of the punk rock attitude attitude. Hmm, in la yeah x it's funny because you know the hardcore of black flag was so different it was also a little politically charged and more socially politically charged because they were mocking everything orange county and that whole suburban lifestyle and you know ray x was a completely different kind of punk band Lots more country influence. They were fiercely politically charged and socially aware. And they channeled their anger differently than Black Flag and some of the other Orange County punk bands. But you could still feel said anger and rebellion against the system. Plus, John and Xene singing with each other is very, very special. 
And well, well put and succinctly, my dear. Thank you. Goldman. I love I love that. I mean, <laughs> if you listen to that Los Angeles album, and like all these LA mm-hmm. punks, none of those punk bands, even though they all formed in the mid to later end of the seventies, didn't start releasing albums till about nineteen eighty, eighty one, eighty two, because punk rock was dying and nobody in the labels would well, take chances with all these and we are getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> But, Let's go back to 1972. Right. Okay, 1971, the Dolls start playing. They're playing in New York, right? Oh, yeah. And David Johansson, Sylvain Sylvain, Johnny Thunders, they're making a mark yeah. to the point where the whole rest of their lives, David and Johnny Thunders, both have been iconic, often sought out for, particularly for their abilities. And we know what Anna Johansson's whole uh, other musical adventure is about. But there, they were dressing in platform shoes and yeah. dresses and wigs and going out there and kicking some serious ass. And right around that same time, we're talking about Cleveland, out there in the middle of Ohio, you've got these brothers. Two uh, sets. Two sets. Yeah. That's what How often has there ever been a band that had two sets of brothers? I know there's been brothers and cousins, and but I don't know about that. So the Mother's Balls and the Casales. Of course, uh, Mark Mother's Ball goes on famously to write all kinds of music, like for kid shows, Rugrats themes yep. and things like that. Those and guys... he's really, really good at it. Oh, yeah. They're the... out there in Akron, which is really... Really, isn't Akron right near Cleveland? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a, like it's, a suburb, it, yeah, suburban city. It's a rural or... suburban yeah. city of Cleveland. And they didn't record until like 1979, 1980 either. And they'd been together right. six, seven years. That's what we're starting to find as part of the yeah. movement into and, a- and after the punk yep. initial explosion. So they don't end up being part of the explosion, but they start in 72. Yeah. And boy, you can hear a lot of influences in that. Their cover of the Rolling Stones is as close to as punky as it gets. Yeah. And and, and Mongoloid's pretty punky as far as that goes. Satisfaction? Yep. All that kind of stuff. Well, that's a whole nother... We got to do one just on Devo. Yeah, we definitely do. Meanwhile, my friend, back in New York... You've got clubs. Yep. You've got places like, uh, some of them are old guys. Kansas Maxis, City. Kansas City is one of Holy them. Holy shit. Uh, when Hilly opened yep. CBGB, that becomes a... You it know, was a country central... bar at first, and, yeah. then, and then it switched over slowly. Yeah. Again, we have to do an episode about Hilly yep. and Crystal and Absolutely. Uh, CBGB. And my time there was pretty surreal. I can't. But there, well, on the east side, things are happening. Chris Stein and Debbie Harry are putting together a band called Blondie. They're in a band called The Stilettos, which is almost what? like a Playboy Bunny band. Were they? Yeah, they were. she was singing in a band. He came in to play guitar. What they exactly met, they is started, a Playboy Bunny the, band? It was, they were like, they were, they were stiletto punks. They were gotcha. gals in stilettos singing sort of punky stuff. Their debut came out in 76. 76? Debut in 76. Plastic Letters in 76. 78. Both those records went gold in the UK. So New York punk exported to London was doing be- better there than it was here and with those first two. But it wasn't until Parallel Lines came out in 78 that they exploded Disco. with Hanging on the Telephone one way or another and Heart of Glass, which took them, was the first sign that they were going in the the, the, the future direction that they would have further commercial success with. Mm-hmm. But they b- were born out of the punk movement on yeah. the on, in the Bowery. Oh, mm-hmm. absolutely. And um, that was going on in 72. And then you were talking about bands out of Cleveland, and mm-hmm. you mentioned the Electric Eels. I, I don't know much about them. The only Here's what I can tell you about the uh, Electric Eels, and I want to jump back to the New York Dolls because some pretty crazy stuff happened with them in oh, those early days. Well, you days. jump right back on those New York Dolls. Man. Alrighty. So their original drummer basically died of asphyxiation on tour in England. They got a break and opened up for Rod Stewart in London. Rod Stewart had them open up for him. How'd that happen? I didn't get the details. I didn't get the details of this in the oral history of punk book. I read one of the uh, members, and I'll give you the names of the books that I've sourced at the end of this, and we'll post them online because there's some great reads about punk rock and the words of the people themselves who lived it and breathed it and did it. The original drummer, uh, Billy Mercer, died from asphyxiation in England. He overdosed. They put him in a bathtub, and then they tried to feed him coffee to inject his system, and he ended up asphyxiating on the coffee. So, to read place that drummer two drummers auditioned as well as a guy named jerry nolan the two famous guys are mark bell marky ramon and peter chris Quola. not peter chris yes wait a minute peter wait, chris. That, so that was before kiss. kiss that was before kiss like 72 the end of hey, 70 it's all brooklyn it's yep. all good like seriously so all the ties to all these bands is absolutely crazy well we found out a lot about jerry that nolan. when we were talking with kenny aronson mm-hmm. in the uh, episodes with him 
he was talking about the guys in the neighborhoods traveling to other neighborhoods to meet the guys in bands from other yep. neighborhoods, and these they were still at that point then. Yep, and oh. Todd Rundgren produced their debut record. That I did not know either. Man, you blowing my mind today. Punk is amazing. The, the craziness is. and the crossover with the rock and roll is just unbelievable because of the rockers who produced a lot of that punk music and were involved in it in some way. Lemmy with The Damned for a short period, which we'll get to. Yeah. So, well, I'm still back in New York and I'm still thinking about what's going on there down by the Bowery, the Lower East Side. Rents are low, people are moving in, and this band called Television shows up. Now it takes a couple of years for them. We're seeing a pattern now. Mm-hmm. It takes them uh, four years to get their debut out. It's a legendary punk album, Marky Moon. It didn't do that great on the charts necessarily. It did good in Sweden and the uh, United Kingdom, but it's a legendary album that establishes the guys, Tom Verlaine and uh, Fred Smith, not the Sonic Fred Smith. Uh, Richard Hell. Uh, Richard Hell, uh, Richard Lloyd, and Billy Ficka, they made a couple records that kids still go to when they find them. They're like, what is this? Yeah. And incorporated into their thing. I, I hear their influence still in a lot of their music. And here's something I didn't know, a real head smacker. The photography on that Marquee Moon album was shot by none other than Robert Mapplethorpe. Are you serious? Holy cow. I'm also XM. Although <laughs> we're not really, but we could be. <laughs> Tell you what we are is we are Pantheon, and uh, we've been listening to a lot of the, um, the podcasts on Pantheon and um, checking them out. And that's where you can find us, of course, anywhere else that you find us. Thank you for listening to the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We're talking about the explosion of punk. And the next band I think we need to talk about is a band that also comes from that whole Max's CBGB mm-hmm. thing. There's other different flavors of music lurking out there. But for guys who couldn't play, loved to sniff glue, and pretty much had the most bass sensibility about songwriting and music, got themselves together down there. I'm talking about Johnny, Joey, Dee Dee, and Tommy, the original Ramones. I always thought, man, first I was like, wait a minute, these guys are not all brothers. No. And somebody said, dude, read Rolling Stone article, explains it all. I learned about them in Trouser Press, and that's where I learned how they did the Ramones. And they took their name from the pseudonym Paul Ramone, which Paul McCartney used when he was a silver beetle. How about that? And they did it as a sarcastic way. And Dee Dee Ramone, Douglas Colvin, was the first person to take the name Ramone as Dee Dee Ramone. And it took him a while to convince him to do it. It. And originally, Dee Dee sang with the Ramones, but he couldn't play bass as fast as they wanted him to and sing, so he passed the mic over to Joey. But it, like hello. everybody else, took the Ramones a little while to get themselves uh, recorded and out, but they were part of the explosion of Sire Records, starting with their first self-titled record and following it up with two records in, in 76 with the debut, two in 77, including Rocket to Russia, which really, you know, uh, I think that's where a lot of people really got to know the Ramones as far as their music. All this on Sire Records, which we talked about uh, Seymour Stein before, mm-hmm. and this is one one of the few labels that came out with all this amazing music there in the mid-70s into the 80s, put out bands that would uh, really be considered taking chances and did it successfully to the point where they became a major label. Later on, I, I started finding out more and more about them, but I know you were enamored of these guys right from the first time you heard them, too. I think first time I heard them, and couldn't believe it. It was fast. It was boppy. It was so different than anything else that was out there, but it made you feel good, and it was fun, and so a little mindless, knew, yeah, and we mindless, didn't know that. Yeah. We didn't know that they were woodshedding uh, and working on the, how to play. We didn't know that they were under-talented, that hadn't been really fully developed, that they were just kind of winging it we didn't really initially get their lyrical content you know because it wasn't really very it was considered pretty shallow uh, critics had some fun taking shots early on but in the end johnny Dee, Dee joey and marky they had their last laugh you know because the ramones really if what was going on in england with the sex pistols and the clash already by then and we're going to get to the clash in a little bit oh here, absolutely if what was going on over there was the powder igniting in america the ramones 
Ramones was the punk rock explosion, the actual powder bursting forth with power, heat, and noise. You think it was them over the Stooges? I think the Stooges were the Stooges, but what these guys did was they put punk rock in the high school level. That's true. And so those people became bonded to the Ramones and stayed with them as fans their whole life. If Sheena is a punk rocker, comes on the radio, and I'm in a room and there's 15 people, I could find the two or three Ramones fans immediately because they can't stand still. Oh, absolutely. And I'm one of those people. You're absolutely right. But it took them a while to break through to the point where they, you know, you're looking at Rocket to Russia in 77, really cementing them in that regard. So that's where I get my theory that they are the heat and the explosion and the noise after the initial spark that was really caused from overseas. It kind of created a curiosity with what's this punk rock shit that's going on over in London. And by the way, it's happening right here. And here it is, ladies and gentlemen, the Ramon. Your argument makes total sense. It makes total sense because we can. I know, but it no, you you might even be able to change my mind, but I don't I don't know if I can because if you need to. I don't know if I need to change your mind on that issue. But their influence is so profound in all aspects of music moving forward. I was fortunate enough to see them in 85 at American University in D.C. in the school lounge, and it was when Marky was in rehab, and it was the third drummer, who I can't remember the name of him off the top of my head, was, uh, and was I'm it, drawing a total blank. CJ? Third, Yes, CJ. CJ. And so it was him, and then I saw them again in 88, 89, 90, something like that when they did the Escape from New York tour with Tom Tom Club and Blondie. Wow. And it was somewhere around 90. I'd actually have to look at my ticket stub to find uh, that. I've got a notebook of those old ticket stubs packed away. Oh, you the, kept them all ordered, I, order, orderly and stuff? Well, I, 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 I had them that. orderly at one point, and then I moved them into my favorite shows of all time. So I was lucky to see them, but like just the way they yeah. did their things. The, they wrote about these high school issues that kids could relate to, you know, teenage love in a punk rock sort of way. I remember seeing Rock and Roll High School for the first time on cable TV in like 1980, 1981 on USA, one of those early years, maybe 82. Yeah and just loving it and being like, wow, this is so great. Well, you were lucky to see them. I never got to see them perform. Um, I would have loved to. By the time I was going to CBGB, they were out of there and touring all over the world. And uh, uh, one of the great American bands of the 70s, and you look at the output, there's so many great collections of their music. And if you put one of those on, you won't want to skip almost anything if if you know the music at all, because almost every song on those things is one of your favorites. And the second time I saw them, we counted the songs. They did 26 songs in 55 minutes. It was amazing. I know. I was like, you got to be kidding. My friend and I that I was with at the time were just laughing. We're counting the songs. And they didn't talk between the songs. It was one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And they just crushed you. They made that the classic way to operate. Oh, yeah. They didn't want to talk. They just wanted to play. I think we could talk about the Ramones all day, Marcus. Oh, yes, we could. And we're going to have to move on. But first, I think we're going to have to take a break. Yes, it's time to take a break. Well, Marcus, we can't do this podcast without the help of our good friends at Crooked Eye Brewing, located at 13 East Montgomery Avenue in Hapro, Pennsylvania. Yes, they've got the stuff, man. I'm telling you, the board has been full, and it's really good stuff. A lot of new things, and all your favorites right there at Crooked Eye. Meet Paul and Paul, the brothers-in-law who started Crooked Eye by brewing at home. You get to meet the Crooked Eye crew. Yeah. And they make it fun every night. I really like the staff there. And while you're there, you're going to meet new people, which means you're going to make new friends. That's right. Now, last week I went with two friends of mine who are home brewers, and they met Chief Brewer Jeff Mulherin, who's all excited about what he's been doing to fill the board there at Crooked Eye, always full lately. And he's got a home brewers club that I didn't even know about that meets regularly. So find out about that and all the fun activities at Crooked Eye by going to CrookedEyeBrewery.com, and uh, you'll see Jeff when you stop by. Great brews, great people, and fun times guaranteed. Next time you want a true craft brewery experience, stop by for a pint and make it Crooked Eye. Serving nightly in the heart of Hapro, Crooked Eye has the cure for what ails you since 2014, and we thank them for their support here on the podcast. Yes, we do.
Back on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, we're talking about the explosion of punk rock here on episode 28. We've been talking about New York and rambling on about the Ramones, but London was really where uh, the spark was lit, where the match was struck. I think that everything we've talked about with proto-punk and uh, the, the dodgier edges of rock and roll in the UK, I think that we're talking about the loading of the cannon. You know, you're in, putting in the powder, you're putting in the buffer, you know, and yeah. then you're, you're loading the cannonball yeah. on the trip back to London because I'm thinking that this is part of the packing. You know, these bands have been over there that have been emerging, uh, whether it's the answer to the American proto-punk firing the first shot, something like that. And then we start to hear about it in the U.S. I want to talk a little bit more about somebody else, but I know we really should start talking about the punk rock explosion with the Sex Pistols because they set off so much. But leading up to them, you had two British bands that didn't do well, one called Cox Bar and one called Swell maps and then you had this british band in about then you had, the, you had i mean those are bands that nobody heard of because they couldn't connect right no, Basically. but they're those bands that like all these punk bands in the explosion were influenced by because they're the band that people saw them at the club doing stuff uh, so there's that and, and then you had a band called the strand which had two guys strand. named steve jones and oh. paul cook how about that and, That's a predecessor. Yep, and wait, yes. And then leading up to it, you had in 74, The Stranglers, which was a punk band that formed as the Guilford Stranglers. They did some really good stuff that was punky, and then they evolved with the uh, post-punk and the new wave. But if you listen to some of their early stuff, like Peaches, Get a Grip on Yourself, Ugly, No More Heroes, Bring on the New Biles, Nice and Sleazy, Peasant and the Big Shitty. It's got that punk influence, but it's bass-driven, so it's totally got a different groove. And then, in 75, everything explodes. And then, all these bands, except for the Stranglers, are breaking up, and the Strand is looking for these new people, and they find this little uh, quirky redheaded kid that's on acid all the time. Yeah, and they didn't know what to make of uh, John Lydon when they first met him, really. He was a spastic acid head. And an asshole! Serious, which is punk. That's why he fit, and that's why they liked him. He may not be the guy who's throwing the torch, but he's lighting the match to set it afire. Do you know what drew them to talk to him? He was wearing a t-shirt that said Pink Floyd, and he wrote, I hate. Yeah, he over handwritten. It. Yeah, handwritten. handwritten, I hate over it. And, and then his audition yeah. was uh, singing uh, I'm 18 by Alice Cooper for him to wow. a jukebox, and they, he made them to all laugh. Box. To a jukebox, and they made him laugh, and so they were like, he's our guy. Yeah, he had the look too. That yeah, was one of yeah. the first times uh, in punk rock, I think, when people said, "And he's got the look." He was he had the uh, the pins yeah, to his shirt, pins holding his shirt, shirt yeah. together. Yeah, totally. He, before he starts sticking them in his face. Yeah. But the Sex Pistols are they the Sex Pistols? Do they become the the tip of the sword of punk rock? Do they become that lighting the match and setting it off? If they don't have the Svengali that is their manager, Malcolm McLaren. Oh, they need him. I mean, he he did the New York doll. He's kind of a very yep. gordy character in there because he did all but kinds of things. But he was more of, of a swindler and a, but, well, and a it, shitty oh, bag. Yeah, oh, but, I mean, as far as his diversity, I mean, not, not his character, yeah. but he did stuff with record stores and all kinds of things before. We actually crossed paths talking about one of his other operations before that back in the early 70s. Yeah, and he was. He was a, a Svengali, but people said he was a, what they call it, the great rock and roll swindle. What they did to EMI to get kicked off the label after they got that money was brilliant and then leading up to it the whole story's crazy Sid Vicious joined he didn't know how to play bass he was nope. a drummer for Susie and the Banshees and he wasn't very good he had that attitude and yeah. he had that look and they were like you gotta do it and so he did it and it was crazy the way those guys lived in excess and what just, they, did they didn't was... give a fuck about the system <clears throat> No, and what they did was, because they didn't give a fuck about the system, what they did was they set standards for punk rock. Johnny writing his name, writing his na uh, the I hate on the Pink Floyd t-shirt, mm -hmm. he would hand scroll shit on t-shirts before he go on. Then he started hand scrolling shit on himself. He, he took the safety pins out of the t-shirt and put them through his ear mm -hmm. or his lip and tried his hardest to be as rude and offensive as he could be. And so when we say that they thought he was 
was an asshole. It's mm-hmm. all meant in a loving way. Mm-hmm. It really is for us because you can't listen to any of those Sex Pistols songs against the backdrop of what England's economy was and the fact that the future didn't look so good for them at that point. No. You can't say that that response that we heard from not just them but the other bands we're going to talk about wasn't 100% genuine and real. Oh, it was definitely genuine and real. And Malcolm McLaren, a brilliant marketer. I know we talked about, you're like, what the fuck is Adam and the Ants doing in the punk scene? That very first EP of theirs, Dirk Wears White Socks, is punk as shit. And then Adam was like, fuck this. I want to do glammy new wave stuff. He left and split up with the musicians. Malcolm McLaren took those guys, added Annabelle Lewin, and you got Bow Wow Wow. And these are all tied are to dry? Malcolm McLaren. Are you all doing this a graph? Can you do a graph for everybody and put that out there? It's like I don't a know. mini fam. It's a branch I, of a family. I don't tree. know if I can do all That's that. That's pretty good, man. But That's I don't know good. if I can do all that. But Malcolm McLaren was the key to this success because of his ability to market, his ability to create shit and stir up the media. He used to get the media's panties in such a bundle that people were afraid of him. Society was afraid of the Sex Pistols yeah. at that time in London. Look. People always fear what they don't understand. Am I wrong? No, you are not wrong. So that's what they didn't get. And they also didn't get, especially in the British society, maybe America had a little bit more of an affinity for the no future attitude, you know, and yeah, God save the queen up yours, you know, that kind of attitude. But the Brits were concerned on another level because they'd accepted rock and roll in that attitude. But the problem was this was the voice of their very young youth, the new youth. And it was scaring them because they're saying, we don't care. Mm-hmm. We just, you know, you can't really say it any better than they did on Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. Yeah. They put it all right there. One album. One album. Thank you. Goodbye. One album. They did it all there. And then the second album is The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, right. which was from the documentary movie parody thing that they did. And Malcolm McLaren and a few other people also sang on it. And you have great songs like Friggin' in the Riggin' and You Need Hands. And, <laughs> and uh, That's where the collections come <laughs> yep. from beyond. And then you have all a bunch of collections. And recently, a couple years ago, they released some demos from that time period as well. But what they did was so huge. They were, at the same time the clash was going on, they were in totally different directions of punk and different attitudes where Joe Strummer was like, dude, be cool to everybody. He had the Bob Marley attitude in the punk rock Well, we get to the influence there, too. We are doing the imbalanced history of rock and roll, the explosion of punk, and we're right in the middle of it. It's almost like the match is lit and we're approaching the... Canon. So back in the U.S., there's these art school kids, and they're hanging around at the same places as the Ramones and other people in that Lower East Side gang, right? They're hanging around or playing gigs. And yeah, David Byrne, Chris France, and Tina Weymouth, who would later be married, and Jerry Harrison. There they are playing yeah. and getting it noticed by Seymour and the gang from Sire Rec. Another Big band Sire that band. they would another band that they would sign and help them to rise to superstardom, really. Mm-hmm. And those first four albums are absolutely brilliant. Well, David Byrne is the face of the band. I I really believe you had Jerry Harrison, who's an insanely great guitar player, but the driving force behind that band was Chris and Tina. Mm -hmm. Tina's bass was so quintessential to their sound, and Chris's drumming was so key to that sound. They are so good at what they did. They are a brilliant band. They are highly educated, and they just did it really well. And if you look at those first four albums and the evolution of them, also, Adrian Ballou was a member of the band for a while and a member of the Mm -hmm. touring band, and that dude can fucking throw down on guitar. <laughs> yes, he can. But like Psycho Killer, you, their cover of uh, the Reverend Al Green's Take Me to the River is sure. brilliant. All they did it. Fear of Music and Remain in Light are the two quintessential Talking Heads albums that I always go back to. I think those are the two that really highlight who they are, what they are. You have Life During Wartime, Heaven, Memories Can't Wait, which Living Color does an insane cover of. Remain in Light has Once in a Lifetime, Cross-Eyed and Pain, Houses in Motion, just some great, great music from that band. And very important in the punk, post-punk, new wave evolution. There they are, releasing an album in 1977 as the punk explosion is happening. They're part of it. Even though they don't feel like The Clash, they don't feel or sound like the Sex Pistols or any of the other sounds that are coming out. 
But there they are, and they're widely acclaimed for being right in there. They broke out of the same scene. Go watch the movie called CBGB. It's recreation of of that whole thing. What we're talking about here in movie form, and I don't know how historically accurate it is, but it's a damn good movie about Mm -hmm. CBGB. What I remember most was hearing probably was Ed Shockey on Q102. This is a new band. They're out of New York. This is Psycho Killer. Boom, boom, boom. Before I got to the end of listening to that first song, I was like, I'm going to get this record today or tomorrow. Because I knew. And then when I got it, it was instantly in what I call heavy rotation at home. And um, it, and then you get the rest of the uh, of that album book I wrote. You get the rest of that album. And then really, uh, a lot of people were just digesting that when they got you know the second record, which came out with this weird title, More Songs About Buildings and Food. And, <laughs> yeah. and, the, and, the, and they really were quirky in the way that Bowie was quirky when it came to the way that they um, they uh, appeared in public, in, in press and on TV or, or even in videos and stuff like that. So you got that happening in New York it's like starting in 75 in Cleveland a band we've talked about before Per Ubu yep. is starting up in Cleveland and they'll they'll have to wait a little while woodshed if you will to get to the point where they're getting signed and released but you England also, has got more stuff going on you got uh, Sham 69 they're, they're their story is actually really interesting because they were they were a very um, nationalist punk band but not built on hate but built on unifying England because England was torn apart at that time due to the fact that they were really suffering from post-war, uh, World War II. Right. And still the, in the Cold War, they're still rebuilding. Mm-hmm. So you have this band that does this, and then all of a sudden, you have got kids from the left, kids from the right, kids right. from everywhere loving their music because it's unifying it. But then you have the uh, National Front and some of the far-right Nazi groups starting fights and creating violence and there was a show in 79 that was so violent that they were like fuck this we're done that's one of the first times we started to hear about this kind of uh, violence involving punk rock there have Mm -hmm. been things that happened at rock shows back all the way back to the 50s and 60s okay but it was the first time that we had seen anything like this the national front specifically injecting themselves into it injecting Nazism into it and it immediately made a lot of people including Including people like me who are musically adventurous have to stop, read about it, find out more about it, yep. and it wasn't as easy as it is today. And then when we did, by the time we were really starting to find out more about this skinhead infusion, mm-hmm. what the white power skinheads, they're the real skinheads, that started happening. By then, this kind of thing was already happening, so there was backlash and immediate response because I don't know too many artists even the guys like Agnostic Front who still do it been out there in the hardcore scene for forever none of them really want to be identified with any of that just about getting out having fun and getting your jollies off teen kids get off dancing and sweating and rocking out to the music if you were born in England in 1960 61, 62 around 1977 you might have become caught up in the craze punk rock and this band called The Clash. Oh yeah. Joe Strummer, Nick Jones, Paul Simonon, Topper Hedden. I caught on. I was leaving college prematurely and getting into working in a life, but I stayed in touch with my college station at Kutztown State University, WKSC. And I went up to visit and they were losing it over this new band, The Clash. Give them enough rope to just come out. So they had that in their current bin. They let me go on the air for a couple hours. Said, you got to play. And they, I even forget what song it was. We just had to let me play a couple songs from The Clash in my set. And I was instantly hooked and ended up going back. And, you know, obviously then you had to go back and get the records if you wanted to listen mm-hmm. to them. So I was fully primed for the arrival of London Calling and, and everything that came after that. I even played a side of Santanista at the oh. Crooked Eye Vinyl Night this week. I didn't oh, tell you that. beautiful. No, yeah. that's beautiful. But that's where they got most of us, right there. One, two, three. We were hooked by London Calling. We were all waiting for it. Well, I heard about The Clash. I was playing Dungeons and Dragons with a kid my age, and his older brother turned us on to The Clash, and we were like, fuck yes, right away. <laughs> fuck yes. The first song 
I heard was White Man and Hammersmith Palais, and it's still my favorite Clash song to this day. I heard White Riot, Janie Jones, Remote Control, that whole first album, we listened to it. We stopped playing because we were like, whoa, this is so fucking So good. much more interesting than Dun- and, uh, Dungeons yep, and Dragons. Yeah. Way more interesting. And then, you know, they do an interesting cover on that debut album, Police and Thieves, which is a rock steady reggae cover from Junior Mervin, and it really shows along with White Man and Hammersmith Palais and their grooves, the Jamaican ska reggae and rock steady influence on their punk rock sound as well as their attitude. So we jump from U.S. over to U.K. and back to the U.S., out to the West Coast, 1976, while all this is happening, Black Flag is forming up. Oh, and this is before Henry Rollins, you know, and he didn't come in till 81, but then they're forming up. Greg Ginn starts what is becomes an underground and hardcore empire by forming uh, his own label, SST. which is unheard of. Yeah, SST Records. Dude was and, smart. and he was smart to get Henry Rollins in the band when he did, and it helped to propel hardcore forward into the 80s, but they got their start there in Hermosa Beach, California. Yeah. They had Keith Morris, you bring in uh, Henry Rollins, who was their third singer, right. and their second singer, Des Cadena. 1980 is where we have to cut it off, because oh, then we're going right. into the American hardcore. We're going to be here for three hours. No, we're not doing that And we're not time. doing that, because we we're have other... We're not that imbalanced. Yeah. Found out something yep. while we were doing our research. There was a period of time in 1978, a band called The Damned had formed, and in 78, Lemmy from Motorhead, Lemmy Kilmeister from Motorhead, played on one track on 1979's Machine Gun Etiquette, and was with the band in 78 uh, when they were putting that together, but that's a real, what? Exactly. Lemmy in The Damned, and it didn't last long, and he was right back in the groove with Motorhead. Yeah, absolutely. I think they but look at all these some bands, help, but these brother. guys are all friends, and they're tied together, and then yeah. we haven't even gotten into the germs yet on the West Coast at that time, where Darby Crash, Pat Smear, Dottie Danger, who was Belinda Carlisle you, at the you Gold slide Gold. right by Pat Smear, you go by him, and he ends up, uh, by the way, the germs are one of the worst-sounding punk rock oh, they recordings. Suck. They were horrible. And Pat Smear ends up being in Nirvana and uh, Foo Fighters all these years, and is an amazing guitar, guitar player. player. And that shown through through the production, which was the Germs' biggest problem. And but look what's going that, on here, you know man. who produced that, jo- that Germs album? Joan Jett. Get out of here. I'm telling you, Joan what? Jett, exactly. Joan Jett produced it, and then Darby Crash wanted to die and become famous dying, so he committed suicide the day before John Lennon was murdered, and literally eight hours or so after his death was announced, because he wanted to do this like whole heroic suicide. Delusional. Delusional thing and then his story disappeared eight hours later because John Lennon was assassinated right. but Marcus we're in the explosion here all this stuff is going on now there's more bands being formed and in 76 you got the formation of bands that we probably shouldn't we're running so long on this thing already we should still talk about but we're going to talk about the Buzzcocks and Richard Hell and the Voidoids form Sushi and the Banshees the Slits you and have then to. the Dead Boys out of Cleveland perhaps the greatest punk band ever out of Cleveland oh absolutely Sonic Reducer which Pearl Jam has done many times sure. live. It's a song that many people claim is an influence, and then after they broke up, he formed the Lords of the New Church in the 80s. And they broke up. They broke all the rules the Dead Boys did. Yes, they, they had did. A, on one song, it was two songs pasted together, and I can't think of the exact titles right now, but... Uh, I was driving one night listening to all the punk rock that you put on that stick for me to get ready for this. And I'm listening going, I forgot how good the Dead Boys are. And then they play this seven and a half minute song. Well, it's seven and a half minute track that's two songs put together, which nobody in punk rock was doing that. Everybody was two, three They would minutes. be mocked for one, doing two, that. Three, two, three minutes. They was, they were, who do you think you are? The yes yeah. of, <laughs> of, of the punk rock? You know, come on. So that's like a, that kind of a, a full album. But, but I, I was amazed by that and about how good they were. And there's the cramps and the x-ray specs. Generation X, which gives us... Billy Idol. That's right. He fell out of that. And bands like UK Subs and 999. I know. I mean, it's just crazy. It's just, seriously, it's just like like being punched by Muhammad Ali repeatedly over and over and over and over and over and over. And he's just walloping the daylights out of us with this good music. You know, you're mentioning all these bands. The Dickies, we haven't really talked about. TSOL, which is part of that surf punk scene. The Dead Kennedys in San Francisco in 78. And again, none of these bands released albums until the 80s. They, they were forming, like, though. Yeah, and they were forming we're and they about. were evolving their sound and they were really developing
developing it. And at that time, the Dead Kennedys were by far the most political band. Yeah, of they them. were. When they yeah. started to come out, yeah. they really were. Yeah. But back in 77, a band called X forms up. Okay. Yeah. Now, you talked about what their sensibility was earlier. Country so, punk. Bubbling out of at a Hermosa Beach is Black Flag and X. Two perfect examples of what LA punk and those and, the, mm-hmm. and its spinoffs could become, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, future hardcore slash metal band, the Misfits forms in 77. These are the things that and are then starting the bad to happen. In DC. The explosion is flying out there, and all these bands are feeling the hot ash on them and going, Yeah, I'm going to form a band. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the germs, bad brains, and stiff little fingers, and gang of four. The ruts we have to talk about. Do we? Because Henry Rollins cites them as a major influence. They were a punk band in 77. That, again, didn't get recorded until about 79, 80. Did four really good albums. A lot of the uh, hardcore musicians claim them as one of their many influences from the British punk scene. I mean, you look at it, and again, you know, the Bad Brains in 77 were forming, and they were just, they got banned in D.C. because their shows were so out of control and ended up in New York City and didn't record until 81, but oh my God, what a live show they had. Now, a lot of the scene then was single releases, and we see it in Seattle with the punk scene, too. Mm -hmm. We've seen it in other cities. Singles and EPs, sometimes shared singles, right? We'd see it later with Sub Pop and the Seattle scene. SST did that. Now, the police came out of that whole thing, and right. that's where they have the, the really came from a punk aspect, and that's why they should be included here is because they formed in 77, but by the time they put out their first album a year later, they were not exactly a punk rock band. but P- Punk but, in attitude, though, but definitely. Uh, definitely. They were and that's because it came from IRS records yeah. and all that stuff, where they came from. You mentioned the DKs, very political, very mm-hmm. funny also. I forgot how funny they were. Oh, the, yeah. The stealing people's people mail. Seriously, stealing Be- people's mail on the Saturday night. Stealing people's mail. I mean, just awesome, Jello. Uh, Descendants is mentioned yep. a lot by people. They're the Delaware band. Church. They're a Wilmington band. I did not know that. Yeah. That's um, probably why so many people around here know Yep. That. I've seen them live a couple times with X in the area. I've seen X like five times since I've been out here on the East Coast. But this is the first echo that we're hearing after the initial punk rock explosion in 77. A little label comes along. There's a guy named Reckless Eric. He was quite a character and his name was Eric Goulden. He was the right age. He was an English uh, rock star, I guess, in his mind. He was a singer-songwriter, had a big single on Stiff Records called Whole Wide World, which got a lot of people noticing Stiff Records, as would some of their other uh, releases that would come out. Most notably, I think Nick Lowe had a single that got everybody's attention. And I've got it printed out here for us. Uh, Stiff Records artists, and their, their, their logo, which was a button and I think a bumper sticker, was if it's not stiff it ain't worth a fuck and you look at the list and there's a lot of people you haven't heard of maybe um but you know there's people who would uh, make other appearances i'll go alphabetically and mention joe king carrasco and the crowns oh, i love them what a fun band they were just party it's party party weekend yeah and there was a guy weekend. named declan who uh came out and released records as elvis costello we talked about the uh, damned devo dr feelgood ian dory and the blockheads uh, yeah. all on stiff the feelies and uh, uh the fingerprints richard hell and the voidoids Lena Lovich, Nick Lowe, of Nick course, Lowe's I mentioned. amazing. Uh, Kirsty McCall and Madness. Uh, Motorhead had mm. records on Stiff. It's funny, Madness went from Stiff to Two Tone. Grant Parker and the Rumor. Plasmatics, who we're going to uh, talk about in future episodes about, about Wendy o. Oh, man. I love her. Crazy. Uh, the Pogues oh, recorded for them. The Dubliners. Dave Stewart. Rachel Sweet. Remember her? Have you ever seen the Pogues live? No. Oh, my God. Um, what a show. I oh, saw that. Sure. And the odds that he wasn't going to make it were. Uh, wasn't going to make it to the show were like three to one or six to one, some crazy odds in like Vegas. But they're one of the labels that came along, Stiff Records, that just, I don't know, they helped to give everybody a place to come and play. And there were labels in the States too that did that. And early on though, Sire. Labels like Sire went from being an independent type label to becoming a major label. They, they created major labels in this country.
country. And that'll be part of the next phase, I think, when we talk about what all these bands that we talked about at the end who are forming in 77 and 78, what they do involves different labels, their own labels, Amphetamine Reptile, those kind of labels. SST continues to grow and be an influence. IRS grew a lot in the late 70s, early 80s. the 80s and became a a corporate big label. R.E.M. was one of the bands that went on there. Um, Less Active, do you remember them out of Athens, George? gets revitalized yeah. by that same time oh, period. Yeah. All that stuff. And, and then, we could talk about just that with labels one sub-hop time. Sub-pop started growing big at that time. Oh, so I didn't so no worries, that back on you. I didn't know where you were. No worries. I don't but, know where we are. I think but, we're here at the end, though. I think we are definitely wrapping it up. But think about this. I mean, we didn't. there's some bands that we didn't even mention that are part of this scene that formed in the 70s that we really have to mention but can't really talk about, like the Boomtown Rats, the Runaways, the Lurkers, the Slits, who were really punk and then sort of became post-punk and Joe Strummer really helped them evolve their sound. That's what sound. happens to a lot of these artists yep. that, we're, that, I'm they so, evolved. that I mentioned and, then, and you mentioned. There was punk and then there was New Wave which was the uh, different instrumentation mm-hmm. and we could talk, we'll have an episode mm-hmm. about the New Wave and then there are the bands that come on the other side of that that are the next wave and they're yep. closer to punk than a lot of the New Wave stuff was. Absolutely. I mean, Susie, she she was a key player in the uh, goth and yes. the turn and then you had Joy Division who, while they were more goth they still had punk and if you listen to some of their early stuff off more like the ice age and, and they were more alternative but yeah. you could hear the punk roots in them as well and that punk attitude in london definitely helped propel them gang of four you mentioned the entertainment record is so yeah. key and so important there's so many people including flea and anthony kiedis who cite them as a major influence in their sound you had the sniveling shits the ruts we mentioned the pagans really? the sniveling shit the sniveling shits you gotta love that name but like seriously some serious doa the descendants we mentioned the go-go's formed in about 77 public image formed in like 78 social d punk rock though yeah the go-go's were punk okay they were they were punk originally and then they evolved and became power pop we're definitely gonna love and punk together we've had brotherly social d all all through the whole episode and we're gonna fight over the go-go's social d at the end of the 70s as we wrap it up you go to minneapolis that's all part of that next Husker wave. Do, the replacements Can't were 79 Stream with Dave Grohl, yeah. 79. Agent Orange, the Cockney Rejects and the Exploited over on the other side of the pond. Then you had the hardcore like Millions of Dead Cops and uh, Riot Clone. You lost me. I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, <laughs> I don't look know at that. Any of these and guys. And we'll 80, dig into all of And it. then 80, the Meatman, Bad Religion, and the Adolescents. So that just says it all right If you there. know uh, anything about any of those bands, look, he just took, he just, Mike dropped. Mike right drop, bomb. Look, if you know anything about those bands that Marcus just put out there, you need to reach out to us. You can do it on our website. There's a comment mm-hmm. section there. You can also access all previous episodes at imbalancedhistory.com. You can also email us comments, suggestions, including what to do with future episodes, things like that, by emailing us at imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. The Imbalanced History of Rock and Rolls on Facebook. You can also find us on Twitter at imbalancedhisto. They won't give us the RY, Imbalanced Histo on Twitter. And uh, we are a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Uh, so many great podcasts on there, and we want to thank everybody there and our sponsor, Crooked Eye Brewing in the heart of Hapro, brewing the cure for what ails you since 2014. And I was down there last week, Marcus, and I can tell you, Jeff's cooking up some good stuff. We're talking about a continuation of the Steve Miller brews. Ooh, very nice. So we More rock and roll that. brews. I hope yeah. you get some winter darks out there that I can dig into. Oh, you betcha. So that's going to do it for now. Who knows what we will discuss the next time we crack the mic here at the Magic Bag Studios of Dark Talk <laughs> Media on the Pantheon Network. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we'll catch you next time on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep your operation running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you, Raymond in Buffalo, Maria in Miami, and Jules and Troy. Taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with high-quality supplies for every industry, plus real-time product availability and access to experts ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.